So today, I want to start by talking a little bit about um, what life was like for me when I was 20. So when I was 20, I just finished studying. So I just finished studying at university, and I just finished a business degree, and because I'd graduated and I was 20, I figured I knew everything. So I started going to job interviews because I figured that everyone would want me and figured out that really nobody wanted me. So I was getting a bit desperate, so I kept going back to more and more job interviews until finally I went to one with a bank. And the guy said to me, would you be prepared to travel to Adelaide to our head office? And I went, yeah, yeah, sure. Walked out of there and went, as if I'm going to go to Adelaide. Anyway, lo and behold, I got the job offer and it was the only job offer I got. So my biggest problem was that the love of my life was in Brisbane. It really wasn't the love of my life. But at the time, I was 20, and I knew everything, and I was sure he was the love of my life. And I thought, how can I leave the love of my life and go to Adelaide? So I said, see if you can get a job in Adelaide. So he got a job in Adelaide. Whoo! I was happy. My flesh was so happy. Things were good. So ready to go to Adelaide, boyfriend in hand. Until the boyfriend's mother said, you're not going anywhere. You have to choose, her or me. He chose his mother. But I'd made all my arrangements to go to Adelaide. So I was a bit stuck. So I went. So I went to Adelaide and thought, no, I've worked hard for this degree. Career is important to me. Status is important to me. Money is important to me. I'm off. So off I went, jumped in my car, drove all the way across the Hay Plains and arrived in Adelaide. So I figured, I'm a graduate now, I need to buy some suits, I need to look good. So I bought myself lots of suits and high heels and off I went to work. So what they did for the first two years is they put us in a program where they moved us around every single department in the bank. So I started in the accounting department. Yep, I've got a lot to offer them. Here, I'm 20 years old, I know everything, I've got a degree. So they sent me into the photocopying room and I stood in front of that photocopier for hours and hours and hours. Do you know how uncomfortable it is in high heels and a suit to sit at the photocopier for hours? So I stood there in front of the photocopier and I thought to myself, I have laboured for three years at university to stand in front of the photocopier and push the start button. Sometimes I had a paper jam and one day... Now, does anyone know what the toner is in a photocopier? Does anyone over there know what a toner is in a photocopier? Okay, so right now, if you run out of ink, you grab a cassette, you pull the cassette out and you put the new cassette in and you're done. It used to be, in a photocopier, if you ran out of ink, you had to go to the toner and the toner is like full of black powder. So here I am in my beautiful cream suit and my beautiful cream shoes thinking I know everything, I'm 20, I've got a degree, I've got it all together, I'm here for, I'm a career woman, I want status, I want to look good, I want everyone to think I look good, I want me to look good. And I fix the toner, and you know what happened to that black powder? And I thought to myself, have I laboured in vain? Have I worked and worked and worked for nothing? Is my purpose in life to put black toner into a photocopier, or on a good day, fix a paper jam. But you know what? It only got worse. From there, I went to the leasing department, and in the leasing department, that's where you lend money to people who want to borrow money to buy a car. 
So it's a very repetitive process. You do the same thing, it's the same documentation, cars are cars, you just put in a different piece of information. So they gave me that job because they figured maybe she can handle that job. So day one, ring somebody who decided they wanted money from the bank. He asked me a question, I had no idea. I said, look, my name's Liz Eisler at the time. I'll, I'll find out and I'll call you back. So I put the phone down, went to ask someone. They said, oh, look, maybe, look, I'll ring them back for you. No problem at all. I'll handle it. That's, you probably aren't going to be able to handle that. You, you don't really know much yet. So they handled it and about two or three weeks later, the manager calls me into her office and she says, Liz, do you remember such and such a client? I said, yes. He's making a complaint about you. He claims you called him an idiot. And I thought to myself, I reckon I might have thought that, but I'm really surprised I would have said that. And then I thought to myself, hold on, he took my name, but I handed that over to someone else. I've just been falsely accused. Have I laboured in vain in this place all this time? I'm trying my best. I'm wearing my suits. I'm looking good, I think. And now I'm falsely accused? Well, it only got worse because a month later, the managing director has an annual luncheon. And at the annual luncheon, he asks all the superstars from the bank to come along and he asks those who he's not real happy with, guess what I got an invitation to? The managing director's lunch. And it wasn't because I was a superstar. So I remember sitting in Adelaide and thinking, the love of my life is in Brisbane. I've got dirty cream suits... I've been falsely accused. I'm standing in front of the photocopier. No one thinks I know anything. No one's prepared to give me the MD's job yet because I don't think I know much. This isn't working so well. Have I laboured in vain? Because right then, all I knew about God is that we went to church at Christmas and we went to church at Easter and we sang a few songs and that's about all that God meant to me at that point. So my life was led by my flesh. And my flesh was saying, go hard. If you work hard, you'll get it. You'll get that money you're looking for. You'll get that house you're looking for. You'll get that car that you're looking for. It'll be sweet. You're going to enjoy it so much. You know, I was suffering. And the problem was I was suffering for evil. I wasn't suffering for good. That's the problem when you live a hypocritical life. Job says it this way. He says, the hope of the hypocrite shall perish. Yet my hope had perished. And you know, hope is a precious, precious, valuable thing. If you're going to let something precious or if you're going to let something perish, don't let it be hope. We need hope. Whose confidence shall be cut off. Yeah, my confidence was starting to wilt. Because that's what happens if you live a hypocritical life. That's what happens if you let your flesh lead you. Whose trust is in a spider's web. See, trust is all about being able to lean on something, put your weight on something and know it's going to hold you. So when I leaned on my own abilities, when I leaned on what I thought was my good looks, when I leaned on my qualifications, I expected them to prompt me up and to support me, and to satisfy me, and to lift me, and exalt me, and glorify me. But I found when I leaned on all of those self 
effort and all of those self-qualifications and all of that self-glorification, I hit a spider's web. It didn't hold anything. He leans on his house, but it does not stand. We think that if we get a house, we'll stand. Our security will be there. We're no smarter than those dumb little pigs in the three little pig story. Do you remember? Two dumb pigs, one smart pig. The two dumb pigs, straw and hay. It doesn't matter what happens, that's going to fall sooner or later. The wolf will come and he'll huff and he'll puff and he'll blow their house down. The smart pig, he built his house on a rock. He didn't live a hypocritical life. He didn't follow the flesh. He did something else. But for a hypocritical life, all that we've got ahead of us is to lean on our house, but it's not going to stand. He holds it fast. We hold on to these ideas. We think, if I just work harder, if I just get another qualification, if I just get a better job, if I just get a promotion, if I just lose more weight, if I just get a bit fitter, if I just get some more clothes, we hold it fast, but it doesn't endure. You see, there's an alternative to the hypocritical life, and that's the sincere life. You see, a sincere life is totally different to a hypocritical life. A sincere life, it acts on confidence and trust in something other than a spider's web. A sincere life, it, it leans on God, who called us. It leans on God, who died for us. It leans on God, who works through us. And it leans on God who rewards us. He doesn't change. And that is the same for every single person sitting in this room. He called you, he called me. He died for you, he died for me. He so wants to work through you. And he so wants to work through me. If we choose to live a sincere life. And he so wants to reward us. So today, we're going to look at hypocrisy and sincerity. So a hypocritical life is really different to a sincere life. A hypocritical life has got a totally different means and a totally different ends. So a hypocritical life is dependent on our own flesh, our own effort, our own resources, our own thinking, our own feelings to exalt us for our own glory. The means is our flesh and the ends is to exalt moi. The sincere life is totally different. This is black and white, chalk and cheese. It's not a bit of this and a bit of that and get something that's comfy. No, hypocritical life and a sincere life are oh so different and are oh so in conflict with each other. The sincere life is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Not me and what I think and my resources and my effort. This is something completely different. It's him. It's his spirit and it's for his glory. Not what's comfortable for me, not what's nice for me, not what I think is going to be nice or feel nice or going to look nice. This is all about him. It's completely different. It's radically different from the life that the world tells us is real living, is real life. So we have a choice. Jesus said, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. So when we talk about a sincere life and a hypocritical life, we're not just talking big picture life. Jesus says, now let me get you down to the detail about 
what you're speaking, every word that you choose to say is actually said for either your own glory or my glory. So every single choice we make, even the words we say and the way we say them, is a choice to live a hypocritical life, that is through my effort for my glory, or a sincere life. This is the Holy Spirit's prompted words to glorify him. So Jesus says, right down to the detail, I'm interested in every single word you speak. He says, whoever speaks on their own does to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. And sincere means true. So if we're speaking every word because we want to glorify God, we're living a sincere life. There is nothing false about us. If every word that we say is prompted by him for his glory, it's sincere and it's true. A hypocritical life is only false and it will fall. But it's being presented to us every single day. So we're going to explore this today. And the way we're going to explore this idea of a hypocritical or flesh-led life against a sincere or spirit-led life is to look at the story of Esther. So Esther is a book in the Old Testament. It's only a little book. And it's the story about Esther and the decisions she has to make between a sincere life following the spirit or a hypocritical life following the flesh. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on two people in this story. So as I go through the story, I want you to watch Esther and the decisions she makes and the choices she makes based on whether or not she decides to follow the ugly guy on the left, which is Haman, and he's a type of the flesh, or whether she decides to follow the guy on the right, the little round guy, that's Mordecai, and he's a type of the Holy Spirit. Because for us, the walk is the same. The flesh wants us to go his way. The Holy Spirit wants us to go his way. And they are polar opposites. So Haman, he's all about being in control, being the master, full of pride, wanting to have power, wanting to have control. That's what the flesh says. That's what the flesh does. And that's what Haman does incredibly well in this story. And Mordecai... Well, you can see how Mordecai is there gently influencing Esther, saying, don't go that way, come this way for life. That way is death, come this way for life. So we will learn and see that this idea of walking in the spirit, of being spirit-led, doesn't have to be some mystical exercise for people who are super, super spiritual. The Holy Spirit is here for each one of us. And he leads you with the same inward prompting that he leads me and he leads every other Christian on this earth. He is there with you wanting so much to work through you because he called you, he died for you, he wants to work through you and he wants to reward you. So through the story of Esther, watch how this works because it's the same in our life. One of the things I love about the book of Esther, it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. The only book in the Bible. And I think to myself, that helps me. Because you know in my life when I wake up and I brush my teeth and I have my breakfast and I go to work and I do the same sort of stuff that you guys do, I don't have a book telling me God said this and God said that and God set up this circumstance. 
So it's really like Esther. I like it because I can say, yeah, that's kind of like my life. I can see how God works in the book of Esther and that's how he works today too with this inward prompting, how he speaks to us through his word and how he arranges circumstances and events in your life and my life to communicate and work through us. He's trying, trying, trying to say, come with me, come with me. I want to work through you. Let me prompt you. Let me show you through my word. And let me organize events around you to get your attention. Because he called us for a purpose. He didn't just call us and leave us. He called us. He died for us. He wants to work through us all the way through eternity. He doesn't leave us. He is faithful. So he is faithful as he was to die on the cross for us, something he did for us. He is just as faithful to walk with us and to work through us today. He's so keen. He's so, so keen. So let's have a look. So as we go through this story, let's look at Esther and imagine yourself in Esther's shoes and understand that in your life now it's the same. You have the flesh wanting to take you one way and you have the spirit wanting to take you another way. But understand really clearly that when Jesus called you and then died for you, he did two very important things on the cross. The first thing he did is he paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. He paid the price that we can't pay. We get that, I think. But do we get that he also dealt with the power of sin to lead your lives, for the flesh to be your only option? I mean, when I'm standing there in front of the photocopier, the flesh led me to the photocopier so I could exalt me. Now... When the flesh leads me to the photocopier to exalt me, I have a choice. Because on the cross, Jesus said, I can overtake the power of the flesh and sin to give you the power to choose now. You're not enslaved by sin anymore. You're not enslaved by the flesh anymore. You have a choice. So I can choose and you can choose every single time to walk in the Spirit. We don't have to walk in the flesh anymore. We have this choice. That's what the freedom is all about from the cross. So watch the choice all the way through Esther's story. So both Esther and Mordecai were Jews. Esther's parents had died, and so Mordecai took her into his home and adopted her as his own daughter. We begin the story when the king of Persia, King Xerxes, and we'll see that the poor old king is not really the sharpest tool in the shed. Watch him too as he makes choices and decisions to follow the flesh or follow the spirit. So this king sent out a decree and he said, I need to gather out all the young women because I'm having problems with my queen. I don't really like her. So he got rid of her. He wanted a new queen. So Esther was one of those women that was drafted into the group. So King Xerxes was really pleased with Esther And he was so pleased, especially with her beautiful appearance, that he decided she'd be his new queen. So what's interesting is how quickly the king makes decisions and what he bases them on. All through the book, you'll see that the king really makes decisions very quickly. He doesn't ask too many questions and he doesn't engage his mind. He just goes, "Mm, she looks good. She spent a whole year looking good, by the way. That was the whole process before they come before the king. 
So he saw he, uh, the flesh suggested an idea to him and he went, sounds like a good idea. So that's what the flesh wants us to do. The flesh presents us with an idea and says, decide quick. Don't think about it. Just what draws you? And the king goes, mm, that appearance draws me. I'll choose her. But we don't have to give in to the flesh anymore. We were enslaved to that, but we're not anymore. So just as the king chose Esther to be royalty based on a, a decision based on appearances, we have a different king. We have a different king who makes decisions quite differently. But he looks at us and he says, do you know what? I see into the core of your soul. I see the sin inside of you and I love you so much. I'm going to call you anyway. He says, you are my chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you. He calls us. He initiates. He starts the process through his grace. So we too are royalty. We are children of God. We're in the royal family. We're chosen, not on the basis of outer beauty, but the fact that God loves us so much, he calls us. So Paul says something to us really um, that's important to understand. He wrote this for the Galatians. He said to them, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Let's slow that down for a tick. Look at the question and ask it for yourself. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law, by things you did, or believing what you heard? Is it an easy question or a hard question for you? How did the Holy Spirit come to live inside of you? Is it because you deserve him through what you did? Or is it through what you believe and, and who you put your faith and confidence into? Yes, of course it's our faith. But it gets murky sometimes. Especially when we say, yeah, I understand to be saved, it's, it's got to be my faith through grace. There's no other way. So we say, okay, yeah, I was saved through faith. It was what I believed. There was no way I could earn it. But then listen to what Paul says. He says... But are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? So he says, okay, you understand that to be saved, you can't do it yourself. You can't pay the price of sin. I need to understand that only Jesus can pay the penalty of sin for me. I have to do it through the spirit. I can't do it through the flesh. And then he says, are you so foolish? And when he says, are you so foolish, he's not thinking that the Galatians are dumb or the Galatians don't have what it takes. He says... You can think, but you're not actually choosing to think. An idea appears to you and you grab it. He says, you were saved in the first place through the Spirit. Now walk in the Spirit and live in the Spirit and finish in the Spirit. You can't do it on your own. Every time we try and do it on our own, we fail. It doesn't work and it will never work. It didn't work for the Galatians and it won't work for us. And then he says, have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? You know, we can work and work and work and we can put a whole lot of effort in. And it's a good question. Are we labouring in vain? The effort that you go to every day, the tasks that you do every day, the difficulties that you face every day, 
the effort that you put in, is that in vain? It's a good question. It doesn't matter if you're standing there in front of the photocopier. It doesn't matter if you're standing in front of the kitchen sink. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in front of a computer at work and it's really boring and it doesn't seem to be getting you anywhere. The question is not, does it feel like you're laboring in vain? Does it feel like you're not getting anywhere? The question is, who led you to the photocopier? Who led you to the kitchen sink? Who led you to sit in front of the computer? If the Spirit led you there, he is faithful That means he called you for his purpose. There's a reason why you're there, and it is never in vain. But if the reason you're there in front of the photocopy, if the reason you're there in front of the kitchen sink, if the reason you're there in front of that computer at work is because the flesh led you there, it is most definitely in vain. It leads to nothing. Absolutely nothing. So back to Mordecai. He'd actually forbidden Esther to let the king or anyone else know her nationality because remember she was a Jew. They were both Jews. So notice Mordecai says, be silent. So the Holy Spirit does that to us too. He says, be silent, don't say anything. It's best if you don't say anything in this situation. How many times has that happened to you where you've been in a situation, put your foot in your mouth and thought, you know, I got that little nudge to say, maybe it wouldn't be a good idea to say this, but I didn't really think it through and I just went with it. You see, the Holy Spirit is with us every single day. Sometimes he says, be silent. Sometimes he says, speak up. But every time he prompts us, he's prompting us towards a decision for life, not death. The flesh prompts us for a decision for death, not life. So every day Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the palace to find out how Esther was. Every single day as a type of the Holy Spirit. He shows us every single day the Holy Spirit is really walking back and forth in our life saying, I want to know how you're going. I want to help you. I want to work through you. And Esther continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. So she knew Mordecai well. She'd spent time with him. She'd listened to him. She'd obeyed him. She'd followed his counsel. So she knew how to walk in step with Mordecai. This was something familiar to her. So we see Mordecai is here involving himself in her life even after the king had chosen her. So even after God chose us as our king to be his children... He doesn't leave us nor forsake us. He is still walking with us, wanting to prompt us and work through our lives to achieve great things for him. So Mordecai, he's the guy on the left sitting down, he became a government official and he heard about two other government employees planning to assassinate the king. Mordecai told Esther about the murder plan and Esther told the king and he had those two government officials hanged. So while Mordecai had saved the king from death, Mordecai was never recognised nor rewarded for this deed. It's hard, is it not? Stop and think in your life. It's hard, isn't it, when you feel like you go out there, you get the Spirit's promptings, you think, I'm going to go and do the right thing even if this costs me or hurts me or is difficult. But, you know, it's difficult sometimes when you feel like you continue to do that But no one's recognising it. No one seems to notice. It doesn't seem to make any difference. In fact, 
Maybe you're getting negativity from standing up and being led by the Spirit and going forward in your life and following his promptings. That can be really difficult on a daily basis. If you're not actually, not even just getting recognised, if you're not just being ignored, but you're actually getting spat in your face for it. This is exactly what Mordecai shows us. He says, yes, I know, it was difficult. But listen to what Jesus says, because this is all about this experience of discouragement. He says, before I was born, the Lord called me. So in the midst of discouragement, he says, I need to stop and go back and say, the Lord called me. That helps me recognize that if he called me and he's faithful, he's called me to this very position. He's called me to do this. I'm not going to be discouraged because he's in control of my life, not me. I'm spirit-led, not flesh-led. So go back and remember, God called you in the middle of the discouragement. Remember, he called you. He has a purpose for your life. He doesn't call you and forget you. He calls you for a specific purpose in his master plan. He doesn't forget you. And then listen to what Jesus says. He says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. There's the discouragement. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. And my reward, that's with my God. So he looks back and says, I was called by God. And then he looks forward and he says, but my reward is with God. And God is a just God. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He knows every single time you've obeyed him. He knows every single time you stepped out and did what he asked you to do. He will not forget. He doesn't ignore us. He doesn't forget us. He called us for a purpose. He holds us and he will reward us even if we don't see it right now. Let's introduce Haman into the scene. So remember, he's the type of the flesh. So he's the guy holding the stick. So the ambitious and self-serving Haman was appointed second in command in the empire. Essentially, he was at the king's right hand. He had arranged a decree or a law that everybody should bow down to him. But Mordecai refused. And while it often was the case that they had government laws where Jews might bow down not as an idol but out of respect... Mordecai had a good reason for refusing. You see, Haman was from a a family that was in total opposition to the Israelites, that was in total opposition to his ancestry. So there's no way he's going to bow down to an enemy. It says in Exodus, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites. That's where Haman descended from. And Mordecai, he was from the Israelites. He was from... He was from the Israel, Israelites who were constantly in generation to generation at war with the, Amalg- the Amalekites. So there's no way he's going to bow down because he represents the spirit. The spirit never bows down to the flesh. So he had a good reason not to bow down. We know now the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other and always will be in conflict with each other. So Mordecai shows us, never bow, never bow to the flesh. But the flesh wants to be in control. So this is what happened next. So when Mordecai refused to bow down to him, Haman became furious and determined to destroy Mordecai and all the Jews. 
So it wasn't enough for him to kill Mordecai. No, he had to kill the whole race. That's where his anger took him. His quest for personal power and his hatred of the Jewish race totally consumed him. So to accomplish his vengeful deed, Haman persuaded the king to issue a decree condemning the Jews to death. So listen to the conversation between Haman and the king. It went something like this. Haman says, There are certain people who don't obey the king's laws. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I'll give you 10,000 talents for the royal treasury. The king's response was very simple. Keep the money and do what you please with the people. Go right ahead. And then he does something significant. The king took his signet ring and gave it to Haman. By giving Haman his signet ring, Xerxes the king gave him his personal signature and with it the authority to do whatever he wished. So the king has a suggestion from the flesh and says, yeah, do whatever you want. Here's my ring. I give you authority. You take control. You be the master. It's the same for us. The flesh suggests something to us, lures something for us. If we jump too quick, we do the same thing. We give him the authority in our our life and say, do as you wish. You see, I wonder what the king was thinking. This is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people's lives that he says, sure, go right ahead. But I think that was just the problem. I think the king didn't think because he's like the foolish Galatians that while he had the ability to think, he didn't think. So when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. When Esther found out, she sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So then she went and and sent one of her servants to find out what really was troubling Mordecai and why. So Mordecai told the servant everything and gave him a copy of the decree to show to Esther and explain it to her. So notice when Mordecai is grieved because something is happening which is wrong, he's not easily calmed down. There, there, here's some new clothes to wear. Just like when the Holy Spirit is grieved in our life about something that we do that might be wrong. He won't be satisfied with a there, there. Here's some nice fresh clothes for you to put on. He says, no, let me show you a copy of the decree to show you how serious this is. People will die. The Holy Spirit in us, when he recognizes and he's grieved by something we do wrong, says, no, no, this is serious. If you let the flesh lead your life, that leads to death. This is serious. He is grieved for a serious reason. He won't let go of us unless we keep quenching the spirit and harden our hearts and don't want to hear what he has to say. So the servant who was talking to Mordecai, he says to the servant, go to her, go to Esther. Urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. 
Esther sent a message back to Mordecai, letting him know that anyone who approaches the king without being summoned will be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter, which is the long stick, and spares their life. In other words, Mordecai says, go, it's time to speak up now. There was a time to be silent and not tell anyone you're a Jew. Now go and speak up. And Esther's reply was simply, no, I can't do it. So after Esther sent the message to Mordecai, basically saying that she couldn't do it, Mordecai sent back this very famous answer. He says, do not think. So notice he he says, don't jump too quick here and make a decision too quickly because oftentimes the flesh will interfere and say, don't do it. It's too scary. It's too difficult. You can't do it. You're going to fail. It's never going to work out. Stay in your comfort zone. You won't like it. You'll never succeed. We need to stop and think. And Mordecai says to her, Whoa, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. You see, the Holy Spirit is prompting us and saying, I want to work through you. I called you. I died for you. I want to work through you so that you can be part of the plans and purposes for God's master plan. But if you don't respond to me, relief and deliverance will come from somebody else. I'll take my prompting and I'll prompt somebody else to do what I've asked you to do. It's not like God is dependent on us to do something to make his plan work. He'll go somewhere else if we don't respond. So he says, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. See, the circumstances we find ourselves in might seem drab and repetitive and they don't look like anything exciting as if, well, that's great for Esther, she's come to such a time as this, but my life, I don't live in a palace. King Xerxes didn't choose me. I didn't spend a whole year looking beautiful so some king could grab me and drag me away to a palace. My life is very everyday, Liz. Does this apply to me? It absolutely applies to you because you are royalty because Jesus called you into his family and Jesus calls the shots and Jesus organises the circumstances in your life. So the opportunities in your life and the circumstances in your life are part of God's grand plan and he says, I want so much to work through you so that you can come and be part of the plan and purpose I planned for you in the master plan. Even if it looks like it's ordinary in your life, the opportunities are there specifically designed for you. So Esther has an issue. She needs to decide, does she follow the flesh or does she follow the spirit? It's the same daily dilemma that we have too. 
the Bible tells us something very, very straightforward. It says, to help us make a decision, we've got to watch where our mind is. It says, the mind governed by or controlled by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the, life, by the spirit is life and peace. So if we want to be spirit-led, we've got to watch where our mind is. Because if our mind is on the spirit and governed by the spirit and controlled by the spirit, we're going to make decisions that will lead to life and peace. But how do we do that? Paul helps us. He says, here's three practical things we can do today. We can rejoice always. We can pray continually. And we can give thanks in all circumstances. You can't do that without your mind engaging with the spirit of Jesus. To rejoice always is to rejoice what he's already done for us. And to say, that is so amazing, God. I am just so overjoyed that... You would take me while I was a sinner and climb on top of that cross for me. I can rejoice always as I meditate on that and my mind is focused on him. I can pray continuously. That engages my mind on him. And when I'm giving thanks, no matter what circumstances are around me or in front of me, my mind is now engaged on him. He's a practical God, a really practical God. He so wants us to engage with him and put our mind on him and have our lives governed by him. And then Paul says something kind of interesting. He says, and do not quench the spirit. So if you're reading word-wise at the moment, so we're up to the book of Leviticus. Is there anyone else in this room who came to the book of Leviticus with an attitude anything like mine that goes something like this? Oh my gosh, the book of Leviticus. I think it's a rule of policies and procedures and rules and out-of-date stuff that doesn't apply anymore. I think I'd prefer to read the dictionary. Am I the only one in this whole room? Two people in this room? Three? Oh, there's a few more. Is my attitude wrong? Absolutely, my attitude is wrong. And maybe it's it's flesh-led because the flesh doesn't like coming to a book that might look boring or might look like it's not going to satisfy me or give me anything. But, you know, the word of God is so much bigger than what I think it might be or what our flesh thinks it might enjoy or not enjoy. So the book of Leviticus. So this week we look at the idea that God commanded that the fire at the altar must remain lit and must remain hot and the fire must not go out the whole time. And the reason being that God started the fire And the fire represents his presence there. And you know, that's not just a rule that applies way back, way, way, way back all those years ago. Because when we were saved and God said, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit, my fire in you, he says, don't let it go out. Keep it fired up. And we can do that if we keep our mind on him and respond to him. So that night, the king was unable to sleep. So he asked one of his servants to read through some royal archives or chronicles. His servant just happened to read about the assassination plot against the king that Mordecai had prevented. And then when the king found out Mordecai had never been rewarded, he resolved to do something about that first thing in the morning. Haman, meanwhile, had been busy thinking about how to get back at Mordecai for not bowing to him and had a gallows built specifically for Mordecai to be hanged on. He decided to go and see the king first thing in the morning to seek his permission 
to hang Mordecai. The next morning, before Haman could talk about hanging Mordecai, the king asked Haman, what should be done to properly thank a hero? Now remember, Haman is the flesh, so he's thinking about him. He's thinking, what would I like? Who's the hero? Must be me. Let me give you a lavish reward for that hero, thinking that would be nice for me. And the king agreed with the reward. Only problem is, to Haman's shock, it was meant for Mordecai. But notice something about this. So something Mordecai had done five years ago, he'd stopped the assassination plot. So five years had gone by and nothing had happened. Sometimes we do something and five years goes by and nothing happens. Ten years goes by. God called us. God died for us. He wants to work through us and he rewards us, whether it's five years, ten years, or maybe it's when we're in heaven. But we can put confidence and we can put hope and we can put trust in a God who is a righteous judge. He knows every single word that you've spoken that was prompted by him to please him. He knows every single action you've taken that was prompted by him to glorify him. He won't forget. So back to the interaction between Esther and Mordecai. Esther's had time to think about being in the royal position for such a time as this, and this is how she responds to Mordecai. She says, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. I and my maids will fast as you do. And in the Old Testament, fast and praying went together. So she's praying, she's fasting. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. I think about that and I think that takes courage, doesn't it? But you know, her choice is really to say, if my flesh perishes, it perishes. I'm prepared to lose my life to save it. Because if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we will live. So those fleshly um, ideas, those fleshly suggestions, if we take them and run with them, it only ends with death. And she says, if I die, I die. Because she has a hope in a God that can give her eternal life, even if her flesh does perish. So Esther puts on her royal robes and stood in front of the king. When the king saw her, he held out the gold scepter. He's not going to kill her. The king then said, what is your request? She asked for a private banquet with just the king and Haman. Haman being so blind to the truth because he's so consumed with himself, of course thinks this is great. Then to his delight, he's invited to a second banquet. During the second banquet, the king asked Esther, what is it that you desire? She requested that the king would grant her her life and spare her people. She said that someone had plotted to kill her and all her people and she named Haman as the culprit. Immediately, he's gone. The king says, I'm sending you to the gallows that you built for Mordecai Haman. This story is an outworking of this important truth that if our mind is governed by the flesh, it will lead to death, just like Haman. But the mind that's governed by the spirit, 
The mind like Esther that's governed by the mind of Mordecai leads to life and peace. So Mordecai the Jew is second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of the people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. So he's now appointed in Haman's place. And just as he works for the good of the people, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You, my friend, have been called for his purpose. And he is continuing to work for your good. He is continuing to call you, to prompt you, to want to work through you to achieve his purposes. So the sincere life is a spirit-led life. It doesn't act on confidence and trust in what we can see and what we can put our hands on and what the flesh tells us and what the advertisers tell us and what the world tells us is going to give you life. Now, a sincere life puts confidence in trust in something solid, something more solid than a spider's web. This is trust in a God who called us, who died for us, who works through us, and who rewards us. A hypocritical life is dependent on our flesh to get our glory. We have a choice now that Jesus overcame the power of sin in our life to choose to step into a sincere life, one that's dependent on the Holy Spirit and his promptings and his guidance to glorify God, not us. But the thing is that sincere life or that hypocritical life don't just appear. They're built one choice upon another. So our life is really the sum of every choice we make every day. So our daily choices, including what we say and not say, when we decide to be silent or speak up, become our life. So who leads you today? Is it the flesh or is it the spirit? For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you'll put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. So the spirit says today, I don't want you to grieve me. I gave you a book to make it really clear what grieves me. It really grieves me. When you read my book and ignore it, It grieves me when I prompt you and you ignore me. It grieves me when you try and put my fire out by ignoring me. It grieves me when you quench the spirit, my spirit, which is in you to give you life and to give you life to the full. I called you. I died for you. I really want to work through you because I have a plan and a purpose for your life I have a grand design you may not see the grand design and the circumstances in your life may not look very exciting they might not look very royal but I designed them specifically for you so come come and talk to me this week 
Come and interact with me this week. Come and let me lead you this week. So when you get that prompting, when you get that pulling to maybe not speak, stop, engage your mind and say, I don't want to be like the foolish Galatians who just jumped. I don't want to be like the foolish king who just judged by appearances. I don't want to be led like the flesh. I don't want to be led by the flesh like the world is. It just leads to death. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord, to do something that I can't do on my own, which is actually to say, this is right, this is wrong. Lead me, Lord. So just bow your heads for a moment. I just want you to sit quietly for a moment and just seek Jesus right now. Lord, we really don't want to grieve you. Lord, we don't want to quench your spirit and ignore you when you prompt us through your spirit, through your word, through the circumstances in our life, Lord. We see Esther and we see her courage to say, if I perish, I perish. And Lord, we can't do that in our own flesh. We've all tried it and we've all failed, trying in our own efforts, trying with our own resources. Lord, we don't want to do that anymore. And we're sorry, Lord. We are so sorry for grieving you and for quenching your spirit. We don't want to put the fire out that you started in us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for calling us. Lord, we thank you for dying for us on the cross. We thank you that you paid the penalty for our sin and that you took our sin and gave us your righteousness so that we can stand boldly in front of you, Lord. And we can seek you and we can rejoice in you and we can pray continuously, Lord, and we can thank you in every circumstance. We so want you to help us, Lord, to engage our mind with yours, to engage our heart with yours, Lord, and to do what we can't do on our own. And that's to lead a holy life. To take those steps to step into the plan and purpose you have for our life, Lord. Help us to hear your voice, Lord. Help us to keep looking for your spirit in the everyday circumstances, Lord. And help us when we feel like we're laboring in vain. Help us to ask the question, who led us here? And if we were led here, Lord, with the flesh, help us to seek your forgiveness and come back again to you, not through self-effort, but through the power of your mighty spirit, Lord. Because you are our mighty God. You've called us, you died for us, you want to work through us and you reward us. And we are totally dependent on you. We love you, Lord, and we just want to be guided by you this week. We pray in your holy and beautiful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.